Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Turn in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of John if you have a Bible. Otherwise, we're going to put those um, words uh, on the screen for you in just a minute. Let me tell you about one of my, um, um, one of the painters I enjoy the most, uh, Italian master named Caravaggio. Now, I'd love to pass myself off as a great art, um, you know, person. Um, even calling myself a great art person gives you an idea that I'm not, um, uh, but I do love Caravaggio. He's one of my favorites, and um, he loved to paint biblical scenes. And this is one of uh, my favorites of his. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. So that man stooped over on the right is Thomas. And we're going to read in just a minute the Bible passage where we learn that um, all the uh, apostles, uh, the, the disciples, Jesus' students, experienced the resurrection on, the, on Easter night. They, they meet with Jesus only somebody was missing, Thomas. And Thomas says, I'm not gonna believe. I'm not buying this unless I can put my finger in the side, unless I see his wound. So Caravaggio captures it. I love this picture. Think if you take a, like a, a diamond right in the center, the upper center of that picture, all four heads are all clustered there. And you can see the way that the masters could use light so effectively, don't you? But you have to particularly note the light on Thomas's forehead, right? Because uh, what's being pictured here is the light goes on. He sees the risen Jesus and, and he believes, right? Now, you know why I particularly like this picture? It's because Caravaggio was a skeptic. One of the greatest um, artists of, of biblical scenes was not a Christian, and um, in fact, he was a carouser, he was a womanizer, he was a gambler and a drinker and um, a wild man. And matter of fact, he killed a man over a gambling debt. He had to flee into exile um, to preserve his safety. And yet he kept drawing biblical scenes until he met Jesus. And Caravaggio, the skeptic, had the light go on. And he was converted. That seems to happen, you know. Let's take a look at it. Why don't you stand if you're able? And uh, I'll read from John chapter 20. Now let me tell you the setting here is uh, early in the 20th chapter of John. John tells us that the resurrection Easter morning takes place. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. A couple of the disciples run to the tomb. They discover that the gravestone is rolled away, the grave clothes are there in the tomb and they're not unraveled. That was a key evidence of the resurrection to them. In other words, uh, these grave clothes wrapped around the body were not unwrapped, but the body was gone. And, uh, and then that night, Easter night, Jesus appears to the disciples uh, and they all see him except for one, Thomas, uh, for we don't know why. We don't know what he was doing um, we don't know if there was an episode of Yellowstone on that night. We don't know what, but he's not there. And, um, and so this is what happens. This is where we find the passage, verse 24, chapter 20, Gospel of John. 
Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You see that just a resolute conviction. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now notice what Thomas does. He doesn't actually do that. He doesn't touch Jesus at all. Um, nor does Thomas say, oh, wow, cool, dude, it's true, right? The other guys were right. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. It's the, it's the first and greatest profession of faith that Jesus is God, and it's made by the person who entered that room as a skeptic. Beautiful. So, my Lord and my God, he says, and Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that? Yeah, that would be you. And then, and then John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So, any of you watch The Chosen program? John, the disciple in The Chosen, is the one who's always writing everything down, Right? He knows he's going to write this down for posterity. He's going to pass this down to other people. So Jesus' ministry was three years, three and a half years. That means over a thousand days. Do you know that John's gospel only contains information from 21 days? Uh, so John has very selectively chosen, and, uh, and this was one of those, of course, day, the day of all days, um, Jesus did many other signs, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus, we have read the words of the Apostle John, who was there. He witnessed it. And he wrote those words to us so that we might believe. And in believing, we might have life. Lord Jesus, give us life. Merciful Jesus, give us life, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So do you believe? That's the question. What's the first verse of the book of John for you Bible scholars? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the first verse of John's entire book. So, so he tells us in the first sentence what he intends to say. In the beginning of creation was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. That's his first. What's he say in the last uh, words of his book? He said, these things I have written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So do you believe? Do you believe? Thomas, unfortunately, didn't. Um, Thomas uh, misses it. Jesus appeared uh, on Easter evening, but Thomas is not there. Now, that has to be the biggest miss in all of history, 
right? Missing out. Have you ever heard of FOMO? You familiar with that term? Afraid of missing out. People can be afraid. You know, they, they, they can hush the conversation in a room because they don't want to miss something that's being said on the other side of the room. Imagine you're at a dinner party and the person you're seated next to you is waxing eloquent on all their foot problems. You know, they have bunions. They've got, uh, uh, they've got fungus, toenail fungus, um, hammer toe. It's just scintillating dinner conversation. But, but down the end of the table, you hear uh, the, just a little snippet of a conversation down there. Well, so-and-so uh, left his wife. You know he, and instantly, bunions aren't holding your attention anymore. You're, you want to get that, that juicy little, yeah, he, he took off with an internet influencer. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff. Well, I, I don't want to go to the dinner party. I don't want to miss out on that good stuff that's being shared. You know, you go, people go on trips to some exotic locale, some big city like Paris, say, and, uh, and they exhaust themselves going to everything you've got to go if you go to um, Paris. So they're taking a boat ride on the Seine. They're going in uh, Notre Dame when you could. They're um, going to Montmartre and, and uh, Napoleon's tomb and the Eiffel Tower and everything. But sure enough, the minute they get home, they meet somebody who's a sophisticated world traveler. And they say to him, oh, you were in Paris? Well, surely you went to Sainte-Chapelle. Surely you went in that chapel. It's, a, it's the most fabulous stained glass in all the world. I mean, it's breathtaking, and there you're crestfallen because you exhausted yourself, but you missed out. Um, and, you know, it's like the dad takes his kids to the soccer games every game all year. His son never scores a goal. Uh, son plays defense, but it's not just that. His son's bad. I mean, if they took all the players off the field and just put the sun in the ball, he still wouldn't score a goal. So pretty safe. Last game of the year. Kids are hot in the sun. He goes to the snow cone truck to get snow cones. He comes back with snow cones for the kids. Uh, when his wife turns to him, when he gets back, and says, he scored. They put him up on offense. He took the ball. He went straight for the goal. He rammed it in. He scored. Uh, and you what? Some dad are you. You missed it. You missed it. Listen, there's things we miss in life. You can miss a, a great um, chapel in um, Paris. You can uh, miss the dinner conversation you wanted to hear. You can even miss one of your children's um, goals in soccer. And you can recover from all that, but you can't recover from missing the resurrection. Missing the resurrection is a matter of life or death. Um, this is, there, is, there is something in this world you cannot miss, and this is it, the resurrection of Jesus. But I got good news for you. You know, when Jesus goes to that upper room for the second time, he's already been there. He already met with all of them. He went for who? He went for the skeptic. He went there just for Thomas. He didn't accomplish anything else with the other guys. He went there just for the one. If you're here today, you might think, listen, I'm just here to keep family peace. One time a year I go to church, and so I did my duty. Check it off. Leave me alone. I'm going hunting next week. Um, yeah, I don't know why you're here. You're just here because your family's in town. You're just here. For everybody who's here, i got to tell you something. You're here because God wanted you here. And you might say, I don't even believe in God. But I'm telling you, you're here because God wanted you here, and he has business with you. Um, and uh, if you're a skeptic, I just have to tell you, he seems to have a special thing for skeptics. He 
he shows up for skeptics. So here we go. Ready? Got a sermon outline. Why, what would cause a skeptic? Thomas is a skeptic. I mean, he's a follower of Jesus, but he's not buying it. What would cause a skeptic to believe, right? And the first thing we want to say is the evidence, right? The evidence. That's what would cause somebody who really doubts the veracity of this whole deal to believe. They would be convinced by the evidence. Now, you have to note that nobody was expecting the resurrection. None of Jesus' most ardent followers were waking up on Sunday morning and saying, hey, this is the day. It's going to happen. None of them anticipate that, right? Um, Even the women that go to the tomb, they're not going there to see if the stone's been rolled away. They're not going there because they think uh, something historic uh, has happened. They're not going there to greet the risen Jesus. They're actually going there to anoint his dead body. There is no anticipation. Jews... For the most part, the ancient people weren't more gullible than we are. They knew how it goes. Uh, when you die, you die. That's it. Um, uh, the only thing sure in this world is death and taxes, right? Um, so what convinced these ancient skeptics? They saw the risen Christ, right? There it is. So what's the evidence? Thomas wasn't on board, right? He refused to believe um, the testimony Unless I see his wounds, I will not um, believe. So what's the evidence? Here, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, there, I, we could go on for a couple hours with, uh, with evidence, but here it is, eyewitness accounts. Jesus made numerous public appearances. Jesus not only appeared to Mary Magdalene, appeared to the disciples, appeared uh, this time. He appeared to over 500 people, we're told. If you lived in that ancient day and you said, I didn't see Jesus, I didn't, wasn't at one of those appearances, well, you could go and talk to any number. There were 500 that had seen him. Uh, their names were well known. They were public. Um, you could um, get eyewitness testimony. Jesus made numerous appearances in the 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension into heaven. Do you know that almost everything you believe about history, you believe because of what? In other words, almost everything you believe about history, you were not a witness to it. You weren't there. You didn't see it. You haven't even seen it on film or anything like that. You believe history because of eyewitness accounts, right? I've heard the other day that Abraham Lincoln died in Ford's Theater. I was shocked, right? I <laughs> um, thought it was fake news. Um, Abraham, Leader, uh, Abraham Lincoln shot by John Wilkes um, Booth who leaps off the balcony crying six semper tyrannis and breaks his leg. How do we know any of that happened? Because there were people there. They witnessed it. They wrote it down. They passed it to us. You didn't see it, but you believe it. Julius Caesar. Do you know, do you, everybody knows when he died on March 15th, the Ides of March, right? And... Um, uh, 40 senators, you think uh, politics is hostile today, set on him and he was stabbed to death on the, foots of, on, on the footsteps of the, on the steps of the Roman um, Senate. Remember et tu, Brute? Um, and, uh, and see, that's about 41 BC and none of you were there. But we know that's true. That's a part of history. We have it by eyewitnesses. We could go on and on. Sacagawea. Uh, a Shoshone Indian woman went with Lewis and Clark all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It's a part of the American story, right? Eyewitness accounts, um, we have them. Second then, 
Um, not just were there eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, we have the utter transformation of the disciples, his students. His students don't really show up big in the um, story up to this point. I mean, Jesus worked with these guys for three years, uh, even washed their feet. But uh, one of the last things they do before he dies is they get together and argue about which one of them is greatest, right? Jesus, you could say, was not an effective small group leader because <laughs> his group, uh, they were slow on the uptake. Um, uh, and when, they, uh, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's gonna sweat blood, he's soon to be arrested and executed. He says, please, just sit up with me. Wait up with me. Pray for me. And three times he goes back to where they are and they're sleeping um, every time. The third time it said that Jesus said, sleep on, which is the only uh, uh, command of Jesus the church has ever kept, right? right? Um, come on, this stuff is good. This is good. This, this stuff is good. Um, so um, um, they're not exactly the most stellar guys, you know. They're hiding in the upper room. They're afraid that what happened to Jesus would happen to them. Um, uh, uh, Peter, the most stalwart among them, says to Jesus, the, if the others turn away from you, if the others betray you, I never will. And of course, he crumbles under the scrutiny of a, of a little girl um, at Jesus' trial. So, but what happens to these guys? What do they become? What happened to the students of Jesus? Do you know? They were all murdered. What happened? What happened to make them? They were all murdered because they professed faith in Jesus. And uh, what happened to turn these cowards into stalwart defenders, fierce defenders of the faith? Do you know that they were sawn in half? They were thrown to wild animals. Paul had his um, uh, head cut off outside the walls of the city of Rome. Peter was nailed to a cross upside down and crucified. Don't you think if you knew the resurrection wasn't true, don't you think if you'd perpetuated a massive hoax that when they're nailing you to a cross, you might say, okay, okay, uh, I, I confess, right? We made the whole thing up. What did they have to gain? Well, they, they saw it. They knew it was true. It utterly transformed them. Whatever, what other evidence? Well, Historians say probably the most telling thing is the inexplicable spread of Christianity. Timothy Johnson um, said this, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to have generated the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. There's a little, follower of Je a little group of Jesus followers and then their Messiah is murdered by Rome and this little uh, thing takes over the whole world. It's the most dominant religion in the whole world over the last 2,000 years. How did that happen? Secular historians say there's only one way that could have happened. Something just like he said, something powerful and explosive, something just like what the Bible says, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Somebody asked me recently, they said, are you a Christian because you grew up in a Christian culture? Just because you, you know, it was your culture around you. I said, how could I grow up in a Christian culture? I grew up in this country. This isn't the origin of Christianity. Christianity comes from the Middle East. This isn't the culture of Christianity. Christianity, all the first Christians were Jewish, right? Do you realize Christianity is the only religion that's left out of the place that it began and has gone to every culture in the entire world? Buddhism, uh, uh, Islam, Hinduism are still culturally captured right where they were launched. They have a sparse following anywhere else in the world. 
But think of Christianity in Asia. China has more Christians than any other country in the world where Christianity is savagely oppressed. In Korea, 55% of the population are Christians. African, uh, Africa has become a dominant Christian continent where Christianity is exploding like never before, and that's true in South America as well. How do you explain that? The resurrection of Jesus is the explanation. You know, the evidence for the resurrection is so compelling, it takes more faith not to believe than to believe. It's utterly rational to believe. Now, some people say, I just can't be a Christian because I don't like the Bible. I don't like what the Bible says, especially the stuff it says about sexuality. Well, it's just kind of interesting, right? Are you saying that there are parts of the Bible you don't like, and that means Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead? That seems nonsensical. Um, the question isn't, do you like Christianity? The question is, is it true? Who hated Christianity more than anyone else? His name was Saul of Tarsus. He killed the earliest Christians until what happened? He met the risen Christ. That will do a number on you. And he believed. And I've already told you what happened to him. They cut off his head outside the gates, outside the walls of the city of Rome for his faith in Jesus. He wrote most of the New Testament. Um, the question isn't, do you like Christianity? The question is, is it true? Listen, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss the resurrection. So I got a request for you. How about doubting your doubts? Now, I doubt Christianity. Okay, well, how about doubting your doubts? Because maybe your doubts don't have much of a leg to stand on. And believe. Read the eyewitness accounts. You know, a friend of mine, uh, I've known this guy a long time. He's a pastor. His name's Steve Brown. Some of you have heard of him. I didn't know till this week that he was converted as a pastor in Cape Cod uh, preparing his Easter sermon. He was liberal. He didn't believe that the resurrection literally happened. He thought it was an allegory. And in the midst of working on his sermon to preach on Easter morning, <laughs> He was convinced, and it changed everything. Um, the eyewitnesses, read the Bible. You know, there's a guy who came to church here. I should say he didn't come to church here. His wife came. She was converted, and um, she didn't miss anything for two years, but he would never come. He was a scientist. He said, uh, you know, if you can't replicate it in the in the um, science lab, it's not true. I, I'm not buying Christianity at all. He wasn't just a not a believer. He's pretty hostile to it. And then suddenly, first of one new year, he popped through the door of the church. I couldn't believe to see him there. And this is what he said to me. He said, I know Christianity isn't true. And he said, but I haven't been intellectually honest. I've never read the Bible. And he said, so I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to listen to you explain it for three months. And I am convinced at the end of three months I will have intellectual evidence that Christianity isn't true. In other words, everything I'm about to do will convince me even further that I am right. Three months later, he was in Uganda building homes for missionaries from our church because he'd met Jesus and it had so radically changed his life. Jesus loves skeptics. 
He loves skeptics. He'll come and visit you. You know, um, um, there was a woman whose daughter uh, started going to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group at her high school. And um, she started, you know, getting into it. They gave her a Bible. She started reading the Bible. The, the mother of this daughter, you know, got, got kind of concerned. She was getting into this. Then she started going to church with one of the girls from her high school in that Christian group. And then she went to like summer camp with them. And then she went on a missions trip. You know, kind of was good at first. Get your daughter into church. Maybe she won't be pregnant when she's 16. You know, this could be a good thing. Uh, but she's like getting way too into it. So one night after her daughter had gone to bed out of her concern, she snuck into her daughter's room and, uh, and found the Bible. And she said, I'm just going to check this out. She brought it downstairs and she began. Well, she was confused because she opened it. And she discovered there's an old part and a new part. She thought, well, I'm going to go with the updated version. I'll start there. Started the book of Matthew. She said by 3.30 in the morning, tears were rolling down her face. And she said, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I never knew. I didn't know who you were. You are so beautiful. And I've completely missed it. She fell in love with Jesus. How about you? Second, Jesus loves skeptics. He convinces them with the evidence. But you know, I want to say something. I, there are people certainly that get converted just like I described. Um, truth, truth is powerful, right? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But I may experience more than anything people who are converted by the love of God. And that may be, in fact, what had the greatest impact on Thomas. He experiences the love of Jesus. Um, do you know, we have a deep ambivalence toward God. We want him, but we run from him. We resist him, but we long for him. Everybody wants to be loved by their father. What one, Thomas, I want to suggest it was Jesus' pursuit. Do you know, he goes to that room just for Thomas. He's after Thomas. He could have said, Thomas, I'm going to ask the whole world to believe eyewitness accounts from, from the people who see my resurrection, they're not going to be alive to actually have seen me walking on the earth. I'm going to ask the whole world to believe that, but one of my own followers won't believe that. Every other disciple tells you that I've been resurrected from the dead, but you won't believe it. And Jesus could have said, you're out, buddy. You're out. You're of no use to me. You know, Jesus pursues him, and he finds him, and he shows up. But this is what happens. Remember when Jesus shows up, Thomas has been saying, I am not going to believe, I'm not going to believe, I'm not going to believe unless I touch those wounds. And when Jesus shows up, he looks at Thomas and what does he say? Here they are, big boy, right? Here's my hands, put your finger in my hands. How did Jesus know that Thomas had been saying that? He hadn't met with the disciples in those eight days. How did he know? Well, he's God. He's omnipotent, he, omnipotent, he's omnipresent. He's been at, 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 uh, at the, at the, he's been right there listening to Thomas. He's pursuing Thomas. He knew the questions that Thomas needed answered and he was willing to condescend to come all the way down on Thomas's level. He's the seeking God. He comes to seek and save those who are far from him. It's the pursuit of God for even the resistant. When we resist um, 
Uh, he doesn't care. He's not offended. He comes after us anyway. Um, C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen. This is at college. He's writing of his conversion. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who, so earnest, who I so earnestly desired not to meet. See what he's saying? I don't want to be a Christian. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and I knelt and prayed and perhaps that night I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a way of escape. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Nobody, there's nobody who ever wanted to be a Christian less than me, and that didn't stop God from pursuing me. You got it? I took my, I took my grandkids to a Bucks game. I know, call children and families on me. And uh, they were like four and six years old. Uh, and, and much to my surprise, they really hated it. It was hot. Um, uh, you know, the only part they really liked was it was loud, it was hot, it was boring. The only part they liked was the cannons. Um, and this was pre-Tom Brady bucks, which meant the cannons never went off. And... Um, um, so we get out of the game. I got the two little boys. I'm holding them as close as I can. And you know the crush, the concert lets out, the sporting event lets out. Everyone's pushing. And, and, you know, and I'm not going to let go. I got these guys like vice grips on, on their arms. I like, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't lose sight of me. Stay with me. Whatever happens. You know. And we get kind of away from all the crush out towards the car and kind of more relaxed. And I let go of their hands. And I get my keys out. I'm trying to find how much car's mine. I turn around. And one of them's gone. And I, um, I didn't lose my senses at first because I was still uh, cogent enough to say, Barrett, where's your brother? You lost your brother, right? I could throw my grandkid under the bus. I was still there. Um, and, uh, and Barrett says, I don't know, I don't know. And then, and then, I mean, I have to tell you that sense of sheer panic I had in that moment. Well, I've got one job. I took these kids here. I bring the kids home. I got to get these kids home. They're entrusted uh, to my care. And I remember yelling, Knox, Knox, Knox. Finally, he pops up from behind the car and said, I was hiding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fun and games. I mean, to, to imagine that the, the Son of God came into the world to find you and he is not going to go home without you and his family. I mean, to be wanted by God See what I mean? It's the love of God that wins us ultimately. And not only that, he had scars. He had scars. Who ever heard of a God who has scars, uh, wounds, a side that's been run through with a spear? What God's willing to take, taste humiliation and beating and hunger and torment and death and all Thomas's unbelief melts under a love like that. Thomas realizes the immensity of the love of Jesus for him. It changes him. It woos him. And he believes. 
So a friend called me from Tennessee a couple years ago, and he was telling me about it. One of his fraternity brothers, he said um, he got married, had a great marriage. He and his wife got two little kids. They got a third that's um, um, she's pregnant with a third. And the worst thing happened, he said. Um, she's been diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor um, met with them and said, here's the deal. We can, we can stop your cancer. We can save your life. But it will, take, um, it will take a treatment that will end the life of your unborn child. Um, so you guys are going to have to make a decision because we can save you, he said to the mom. But if we do, the baby will not survive. And he said, I believe that we can save the baby by forgoing any treatment. We can get you far enough that the baby will be viable outside the wound, but by then the cancer will have run so far and so deep that it will cost you your life. So, so I can save you or I can save the baby. I just can't save you both. You guys have to go and talk about this. And my friend told me, the woman didn't look at her husband. She didn't take a moment to talk about it. She just looked at the doctor and said, it's the baby. We'll save the baby. There is no discussion. And it went exactly like the doctor said. They had to keep her alive sort of artificially the last couple of weeks to buy every moment they could for that baby in the womb um, to, to help the baby's chances. And the day the baby was born by C-section, the mother died. But every day of that uh, baby's life, she's grown up as a healthy little girl. She knows what? That her mother laid down her life for her. She will not doubt a day of her life that she is a beloved child. And if you belong to Jesus, neither will you. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible what does it say? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who what? He loved me and gave himself for me. Thomas melts into that love. That love has the power to melt the most resistant heart. Last of all, and let me say, love of God, the evidence I beg you to believe. I ask God to open your eyes. I don't want you to miss the resurrection because I want you to consider the implications of the resurrection. I mean, ultimately, what convinced anybody, not just that Jesus overcame the grave, but that Jesus killed death itself, right? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he die." he will live again. Jesus took on death and he neutralized it. Those police officers in Nashville, Tennessee that rushed into the Covenant School, boy, they redeemed and gave honor to the good name of policemen everywhere in our country, didn't they? They went bravely through those hallways until they found the purveyor of death and they neutralized death. And that's what Jesus did when he came into the world. He came in to save his, um, his brothers and sisters, and nothing would stop him. And because of it, death is no longer the end of our story. 
Jesus himself was walking, living, breathing proof that death no longer held sway over us. Death wasn't the end. Death had died in Jesus. Jesus was the first fruits, the first evidence of what would follow. Many who would die and then be alive again. So what I want you to understand is that Jesus doesn't, death doesn't just change the future for you. It changes the way we live right now so that we can live with a selfless love to bring healing to our broken world. Hear what I'm saying. If death is off the picture as the most dominant event in your life, then you can live selflessly. But that's not what happens with people. What happens when people grow older? They move to Florida. And, they, and where do they move? They move to the villages. And, uh, and there in the villages, you can do anything, right? You can play pickleball at three in the morning, and you can go line dance at those awful downtowns, and you can get your um, uh, golf cart all souped up, and you, can, uh, and you can cram every event you possibly can into your life and activities and do the, the, the 200,000 different things you're allowed to do in the villages, and, then, uh, and you can do foreign travel, and, and there's such a frenetic activity of retirement. You know why? Because there's something looming. What's looming? What's coming? Diapers, that's what's coming, right? And then then on the other side of diapers is dementia, and the other side of dementia is death. So go, 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 go. You're on the clock. What if you're not on the clock? What if you're not on the clock? What if death doesn't hold that sway over you? What if you're going to live forever? See how it changes everything? You could actually give your life for the good of other people instead of living for yourself. It utterly changes everything. Dick Kuntz, this is, um, this is the principal on the left of the school in Nashville that was killed by the gunman. They had the six funerals for those who died. Hers was the last one. It was just last week. This is what her husband said at the funeral. Catherine would be embarrassed if our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. You know, she ran out of the, her office, encountered the shooter, and was killed. She was a champion for others, her husband said, and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame. Therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them. Just leave that screen there for a minute. Did you hear what he just said? I, on, on, uh, at the funeral... Memorial Servicer's wife, he said, there's a seven family grieving. Maybe that family were Christians too. After all, they had sent their daughter to a Christian school. It's the family, it's the parents of the gunmen, right? He's saying, let's care for them. They're hurting. They could easily be the forgotten. But then he goes further. We count on the Lord in our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains we are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. He asked God to bless who? Not just the parents of the shooter, but the shooter itself. Who says, Father, forgive them? They know not what they do. Who loves their enemies? Who can lay down their life? It's those who don't fear death. They live in this world to bring good to others, not themselves. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
We can also live without being crushed by the pain of this world, right? In this life, we have the most painful moments, most bitter things, horrible things happen to us. Um, but what if uh, we know the end of the story? How would that change life? Can, can I tell you something about myself? This is a little embarrassing to admit, but I'm, I'm deeply neurotic, <laughs> especially when it comes to sports. I mean, I, I don't ever turn on the sound when I watch sports at home. It allows me to control my emotions. And, and I like the Tampa Bay. I love the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, and if you're a Christian, you would too. Um, <laughs> and yet hockey, there's something particularly about hockey that affects me. And so what if they're playing like, like the New York Rangers? Ooh, you know, the Boston Bruins. And, and suddenly the other team's up by two goals. Seven minutes into the game, Vasilevsky's like a sieve back there. And, I, and I'm, I'm tormented as I'm watching this. So I've discovered a strategy. What I do is I don't watch till it's all over. Then I check the score on my phone, and if the Lightning won, then I watch the game. Um, right? And it doesn't matter if they go down two to nothing because I know how the story ends. And that's the only thing that sustains me with a daughter with a brain tumor is because I know how the story ends. You got it? And one last thing. We can live with a confirmed reservation for the party. We live knowing that the party and the feast that's coming that Jesus is set for all who belong to him the day when everything sad will come untrue. Do you live with that anticipation? Hallie Scruggs, the daughter, the nine-year-old daughter, the pastor of Covenant Church, she'll be at the party. We'll get to meet her and her family. Our own Sashi Jones in this church, she'll be at the party. She'll, she'll challenge her brother Sam. You know, the Jones family, they run marathons. Sam thinks he's quite the runner. But his little sister will challenge him and she'll beat him and it won't even be close. At the party, you know, Catherine, the young girl that sits here on Sunday morning, she was at the last service. Catherine's always la laughing out loud right in the middle of the service. Guess what? Her laughter will be every bit as beautiful at the party. Ross Hoffmeyer will be reunited with, with Debbie there at the party. The Witherows, the Runnels, the Noseworthies, the Puckets, the little ones that they didn't get to enjoy in this world will be at the party. Jake Steele and Wyatt Norman, two college students in our church that died, they're waiting for us there. Amy Kelso, George Williams, Teresa Roseboro, they'll be at the party. There's a woman in our church from the time I came here so just a few years ago, she died. She lingered uh, close to death for a number of weeks and uh, unconscious all that time. And then, then it, it was very clear that it was the day that she was going to die and her family all gathered around. And the most bizarre thing happened. She um, had been completely unresponsive and uncommunicative for weeks. When suddenly she lurched up in the bed, her eyes opened wide, and she said, Wow! Wow. And then she fell back dead. 
if you belong to Jesus, then when you breathe your last on this earth, you will open your eyes on the other side and you will say, wow, my Lord and my God, and you will be at the party. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you came into the world because you loved us and you hunted down death and you killed the death so that we might forever belong to you and to each other. There's nobody like you, Jesus. We love Easter. We will love what you've done for us. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.